Hi there, and welcome to the Science Media Centre's podcast. We've decided to look back at some of the biggest stories we've been involved with over our first 20 years. I'm your host, Fiona Fox, and I'm the founding director of the Science Media Centre. These discussions are basically fireside chats with three or four key people who we worked with on some of these major stories. I should say that the questions I ask are based on my own memories and not necessarily accurate, objective, researched accounts of what happened. In this episode, we'll be discussing the controversy known as Climate Gate, and I'm joined by Professor Phil Jones, Simon Dunford and Emily Beaumont to discuss their memories of the time, the challenges they faced and the reflections they now have. I hope you enjoy. So, as you know, the this podcast is part of a series that the Science Media Centre are doing to mark our 20th anniversary. Um, and it's going to be a kind of archive of some of the biggest, uh, most controversial science stories that hit the headlines in the time when the SMC was operating. So uh, we, I don't think we could have ever done this series of podcasts without having um, a discussion about ClimateGate, which uh, was one of the biggest stories that we dealt with. Certainly the one that kept me awake at night more than any other, I think, seemed like one of the hardest science stories we ever dealt with. Um, and ClimateGate is the phrase that some people, not all, uh, use to describe the theft of um, a I think, 20 years worth of emails, um, most notably those of, of Phil Jones, Professor Phil Jones from UA. He'll introduce himself in a minute. And the hack took place in 2009, November 2009, which was just literally weeks before the big COP15 international meeting on climate change. So uh, I'm going to ask our um, guests to introduce themselves and then we'll start chatting about um, the implications of that and how the media covered it and what we were all doing um, to, to tackle this huge science story. So over to you, Phil. Who are you? Yeah, I'm Professor Phil Jones. I recently retired in 2016 from the Climatic Research Unit at UEA in Norwich. Um, and I'd been there since 1976. And I was, I was a soft money researcher for 18 years until the UEA took me onto the staff. And in 2009, I was the director of the Climate Research Unit. Great, thank you. Emily? I'm Emily Beeman. I'm the Environment Correspondent at PA, the Press Association. And I had, uh, in 2009, I'd been doing that job for uh, two years. I'm Simon Dunford. Uh, I'm Head of Research Communications at UEA now. Um, in 2009, I was a press officer uh, in the UEA media team. And I've been doing that job for five years when ClimateGate happened. Great. Okay. And I'm Fiona Fox. I'm the Chief Executive of the Science Media Centre. And uh, I'm also a press officer. Um, I've always been a press officer and I still do that. So I was handling media inquiries about this. So I thought I'd kick off by just asking you each to talk about um, kind of how you found out about these emails being hacked um, and what was happening, I guess, in those first two or three days what what your response was, what you what you were thinking about it. Just give paint us a bit of a picture. Um, so, shall we start with you, Phil? Where, how did you find out? Well, I, I always used to go in, get into work quite early in the morning, so I got a place in the car park. So I got in, and it was about quarter to eight in the morning, and I was turning my computer on, and the phone rang, and it was a call from a New Zealand journalist. I can't remember who they were or where they were. Um, but uh, they asked me if I knew if I, if these emails were mine, and I had no idea what he was talking about. So uh, I told him uh, to get back in touch with me an hour later when I got my computer on and had been able to find out what was going on, because I had no idea at the time what was going on. Wow. And did your heart sink? My heart did sink. I thought it might be something to do with... Um, uh, the Freedom of Information Act requests we'd had over the past two years since about 2007. But I really had no idea when he mentioned emails because these <coughs> these FOI requests were for, for climate data rather than emails. And, and so you turned your computer on and was did this confirm it or how did you confirm what happened? I turned my computer on and I got through to the, some um, news organisations' websites, no idea which. Um, so I found out what it 
what it was about and that, that there were a thousand odd emails and etc. And I started looking at some of them. Um, and then I tried, I involved a few other people who were, who got in by then and we were all trying to figure out what it, what it was all about. Um, and I think later that day, we then decided to tell the head of school in environmental sciences, it was, it was the dean then, but it's a different structure now. Um, and over the next two or three days, it got higher up the university um, system. And we did meet the vice chancellor in the university registry at that time. Right. That might so, be the day later or a day, day or two later. So effectively, when you were looking on the news websites, there was already media coverage of your emails before you knew that your emails had been. Yes. Stolen. Wow. I think it must have gone up because we obviously on GMT here at this yeah. time. And um, we uh, must have gone on sometime late American time. Yeah. yeah. Um, over to you, Simon, because you're obviously in, in the same university. So when um, when did you hear about it? Um, so I'm struggling to remember the exact mm-hmm. day, mm-hmm. Um, like all of us probably. But I think, um, I mean, it was the Tuesday that the hack happened. Uh, on the, the crew server, so we know that much. I don't think I heard on the Tuesday. I think maybe by the Wednesday or Thursday, I I was hearing from my boss um, that the server had been hacked, um, and then we learnt about Gavin Schmidt having all of the emails dumped onto his blog site. Um, and so, yeah, I heard, I think probably like maybe a day or two days after the actual hack had happened. Um, and my first reaction, I suppose, was, um, it, we, you know, ha- hacks on university computer servers was quite common even then. So it didn't feel like a big deal at the time. Um, although when the cherry picked emails started to appear on the blog sites, which was, I think, around about the Thursday, then it seemed like a very big deal because it was clear that that was going to be a big problem. Um, reading those, but we didn't know if they were genuine. We had no idea for a while whether the emails were genuine because Phil and his team had to, had to work out are these real or not. So there was there was a lot of confusion at the beginning. Wow, um, Emily. Yeah, so I was on um, one of the Greenpeace boats, uh, uh, Rainbow Warrior Esperanza, um, which was parked up in um, uh, the Docklands in London uh, because it was there as part of their uh, the charity's pre COP um, uh, work ahead of going to Copenhagen for the big climate summit that was just a few weeks away at that point. And I remember standing in the cabin, having a cup of tea with uh, with one of the activists from Greenpeace and, and one of my fellow journalists. And uh, um, the Greenpeace activist was was telling me, um, you know, oh, this has happened. And, and, and I just remember there being this huge divergence in opinion on how significant this was going to be with uh, the guy from Greenpeace being very concerned about it and saying this is massive it's going to be a huge deal it's going to disrupt cop um going to disrupt the climate talks and and the the journalist just being ah no it's a storm in a teacup there's nothing there's nothing to this it'll all blow over sort of thing um and i think looking back you know i i i didn't know what to make of it and um i i feel like sort of looking back in in some ways they they were both right um in, in different ways in terms of 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 the import of the story and the sort of substance of the story. Um, but I'm sure we'll go on to talk, yeah. talk about that a bit. But, but what I do remember is uh, we, we didn't sort of tackle the story. We didn't write about it for, for, for several days, actually. And I think that's probably partly to do with what you were saying, Simon. It was, it was unclear exactly what was going on and um, whether they, these, these emails were genuine and what they actually showed, um, which later became a bit easier to see because they, they were then put up online as a searchable database and you could see exactly what they did or didn't say or the words that were or weren't in there. Um, but yeah, certainly for the first few days, we, we didn't write anything about it. That's interesting. I think so. I was trying to remember because I've written a, a chapter on this um, story in my book, and I remember emailing Bob Ward and saying, "I think you phoned me to tell me, didn't you?" Because I was trying to remember where, mm. um, and he said, "No, you phoned me to tell me." 
<laughs> so, so as you say, it's quite hard to remember the actual day. But one thing I do remember is that it had been around for days before we heard about it. And I think that's very Science Media Centre. If it's if it's on social media and in the blogosphere or the twattersphere, as one of my colleagues, um, then we don't we don't tend to when it hits the news agenda. So it's interesting what you say, Emily, that PA didn't cover it for a few days because I think the mainstream news media didn't and they were working out. That's right. I mean, I think um, our approach, I mean, the you know, the approach of the senior leadership at UEA and the senior kind of press team was very much to wait and see what happened over the weekend. So, you know, in the first few days, I think The Guardian did run a story, but uh, it didn't really catch and no one else really followed it up. Uh, <coughs> and so the thinking was, if we can get through to Monday and the stay program don't call, then we're going to probably be okay. But then on the Sunday, the stay program called. Um, and then, of course, um, that was what ignited the story was the today program running it on that Monday. So so that takes me to the next question, really, which is what what we all did in relation to the media. I'm sure there was lots of things happening, but... Um, so I know in, in the Science Media Centre's case, already by then, um, we were quite formulaic here. You know, story breaks. We go to our database, any scientists with the climate change keyword, um, and we ask them for their comments. But already that didn't work as planned. So many of the scientists were saying, I don't know what to make of these emails. I haven't seen them. I don't know if they're real. Mm. So I can't give you a comment. Uh, actually talking about Bob Ward, who's the head of communications at the Grantham Institute at LSE, he ended up doing a lot of interviews, broadcast interviews in those first few days because we were struggling to meet the, as you said, it all kind of kicked off on that day with the Today programme. A lot of calls were coming through and we couldn't do what we normally did. So we ended up kind of saying to these, just don't, don't mention Phil Jones, don't mention the contents of the emails but say something about climate science, because it was very clear to us that the, these emails were being used by sceptics um, to undermine public trust in climate data and climate science more generally. So we just felt like we just had to ask for these quite boring anodyne comments in a way of saying, this is what we know about the strength of UK climate science. But what were UEA doing? Because the other thing, of course, we did, which is pretty routine, is that we phoned um, you, Simon, and your boss, Annie, and said, can you get Phil Jones on the train now um, to the Science Media Centre to speak to Emily and all the other good science and environment journalists who were struggling to work out what to do? And we just wanted Phil to be there to interpret his own emails rather than... But, um, yeah, how did you react to that? I mean, I, I wasn't at the very centre of the kind of decision-making. First thing to say, really. Um, so some of this is second-hand that I've... I've heard and, and understood afterwards. But um, I think when we knew about the Today programme, it was decided to put up Bob Watson because we knew Nigel Lawson was going to be on the Today programme launching. Well, I think we didn't know until we heard him launch the Global Warming Policy Foundation on that Monday as part of the story, part of this first Climate Gate story. So, but we knew we were going to be up against Nigel Lawson. So we put up Bob Watson as, as our main heavyweight. And tell us scientist. who he is. So Sir Bob Watson was uh, an advisor to the Clinton administration on climate. So he worked in the White House. Uh, and at the time of Climate Gate in 2009, he was deaf for a chief scientist, I think. So we figured he was our biggest. But he was UEA as well. He was UEA, yeah. He was a UEA professor. Yeah. Um, and he seemed like, like our best bet in terms of um, a media performer, very seasoned, could stand up to Nigel Lawson. So he went on and did a good job on the stay programme. And then during the course of that Monday, he did, I think he did Newsnight, Channel 4, a few others. So um, we were putting him out to bat, was was the was my understanding of the strategy. Mm. Um, meanwhile, we were getting, uh, our phones were alight to an almost comic extent, and we and everybody wanted Phil. Um, and, and the word I was getting was, Phil um, can't do it because, um, and then, you know, you might want to talk about this, Phil, but mm. you, you were very quickly kind of crushed by the pressure of what was mm. suddenly an extremely enormous story. Mm. Mm. Yeah, can you describe it? I mean, presumably you still hadn't even read all the emails or got your head around it, but, but yeah, people like me were saying, right, get into uh, London. The one thing I maybe you weren't aware was that the, 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 some of these emails went back 20 years mm. and I didn't have copies of them. Mm. 
because I deleted loads of emails of some years earlier to keep to keep the system under control. It's different now. You've got more, much, much more space, but we didn't have the space then. Also, I I was compromised enough to realize one thing: that my bank details and my credit card details were in these emails, but they weren't in any of the ones that were released. So we had to had to change everything that mm. weekend. Mm. Uh, um, going around Norwich, um, doing that as well. Mm. So there's, there was that, and I did, but I, I some some of the time I couldn't remember some of the emails. I, I think I clearly sent them, and sometimes you you, you send off a quick emails in the, in the heat of the moment, and you you maybe should wait a bit longer. I mean, I've certainly learned that lesson <laughs> late, later to wait a bit longer in replying to emails rather than just responding mm-hmm. like you would in a conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I I really couldn't cope when I wasn't up to doing the interviews as Simon mm-hmm. said. Yeah. Uh, but at this point is where Emily comes in because we, <clears throat> it was very clear during that sort of the course of that Monday that we had to get Phil's point of view across and Phil's explanation across um, because there were multiple even just in the course of one day, multiple kind of arguments happening um, in terms of what, what what the story actually was. And a lot of it was very technical and very complex. So we decided to do a single interview, an exclusive, and we chose Emily as someone we trusted to write a good, accurate, balanced piece. And also as the UK Wire Service, we figured that would at least put a pause on some of the crazy, crazy reporting going on by putting out our kind of, this was our uh, explanation. In, with Phil, so um, so that's what we did. I mean, it didn't quite work out that way in terms of the pause part <laughs> didn't happen. Um, but the interview, I think, went went well, and we used it to just try and um, be robust about what the science was, uh, and and with some mea culpa <clears throat> in terms of the language used in some of the emails, you know, uh, you know, and the frustration behind those emails stemming from all of the kind of F- FOI campaign against Phil. Yeah. Emily, do you want to? Yeah, so so I got a call, obviously, from UEA saying, um, can you get on a train to Norwich um, and, and and come and do this interview um, in person with with Phil? And it's the only interview and we're, we're giving it to PA for, for the reasons that you've you've just described, Simon. Um, and unfortunately, for, for logistical reasons, I can actually go in person and. Uh, Obviously, UA wanted it to be an in-person interview, um, and and so so there was a brief sort of well, we're going to go to another um, <laughs> news agency, and I was like, well, okay. It's very old-fashioned now, post-COVID. I know, you, I know. In the pre-Zoom world, we yeah. can just, yeah. just jump on on Zoom. But um, yeah, in the end, it was agreed that we would do it on on the phone. And I, I, in a way, I think that was a shame because I think it would have been better for you, Phil, and, and and also from a from a journalism point of view to have been able to really sort of sit down together and sort of maybe even look at those graphs that that you know that led to the the infamous comment about the trick to hide the decline. Mm. Um but you know we did this interview on the phone and and almost immediately that we'd agreed to do this interview Obviously, UEA then started telling all the other journalists who were ringing, no, 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 we're just doing an interview with PA, just PA, just PA. So then my phone starts going <laughs> off <laughs> with the Daily Mail going, oh, you know, ask Phil about how it's how it's affected him. And the Guardian going, right, I want a really technical explanation of what was going on with the tree ring data. <laughs> you know, um, and then the temperature record in this in this uh, graph. and and. So I had this sort of huge amount of pressure to, um, you know, to, to get everybody's sort of questions answered. And obviously we only had mm. a limited amount of time to speak. And so, so we did the interview and then, and then I got off the, off the phone and my phone started going again. And it was like, Oh, what did he say about this? And what, what about this? And what's the, and I'm like, obviously trying to file it as quickly as possible because by this point it's relatively late in the day and, um, uh, you know, we, we needed to, we needed to get the copy onto the wire for, for the newspapers and for, for the TV and so on. And, um, but I think, I think we sort of covered off, as Simon said, those sort of main things, the, the, um, the language in the emails and, and the, the having to deal with the FOIs, which had obviously been this sort of huge issue, um, or the FOI requests. 
uh, the, the trick to hide the decline, which was being used as this sort of smoking gun um, for for some notion that there was, you know, a huge conspiracy to 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 alter the climate science, and also, um, you know, the the very real impact it was was having on on you, Phil. So that's really fascinating, actually, about all those journalists phoning you. I've never thought about that in terms of PA so much. I mean, what is your attitude to that? Did you make a, a note of, well, The Guardian will want this, Daily Mail will want this, and to a certain extent, PA is responsible. I mean, they, they all pay for PA, I presume. A PA is, or or did you think, piss off, I'll ask whatever questions I plan to ask in the first place. Um, I mean, I, I don't think... I don't think I was being asked to ask anything that was, um, you know, that, that was something that I wouldn't have considered asking anyway. Um, there was pressure, obviously, particularly, you know, from, from some of my more science colleagues, uh, on the environment patch to, to really kind of drill down into the science, which, um, you know, was difficult to do on the phone and was, was difficult to sort of really get to a suitably scientific explanation for somebody who perhaps has a PhD, whereas I'm writing for the whole of the media. But yeah, I mean, that is PA's job. And it is one of those times, I think, when PA comes into, it really comes into its own mm. because we are a way that you can speak to a single source and in theory, at least, um, that means that you have got your message out to um, everybody in the media and and not just the nationals, obviously, because this was a story that was prompting, you know, interest everywhere. So, so we supply news to all of the regional newspapers um, who are obviously reliant on us to get their coverage of sort of more national news. So, so I, I, I didn't object to the phone calls. Um, but it was just, you know, it was, it was noticeable. I, I could see the moment UEA had started telling other people <laughs> that I was doing the interview because suddenly it was like, Emily, Emily, we need this. It didn't occur to me that that, that would happen. Yeah. <laughs> and and were, were they and you pleased with the outcome of this? Obviously, it's a bit difficult in front of Emily to say we were, we hated everything. <laughs> That's <but>. terrible. <laughs> no, I think, I think that we were happy with the, with the article. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I think it was, it was, just factual balance. It was exactly what we, what we wanted. I think. I think part of the reason it didn't do the job we wanted it to, which was to kind of just calm things down a bit, was that I think it was on. Maybe it was the the day after, um, or even the same day that the PA story went out. Um, George Monbiot called for Phil's resignation in the Guardian, and for me that was, you know, George Monbiot being the kind of um, mm. figurehead of the environmental journalism kind of group in a way him calling for his resignation so so soon like that i think was a green light for the right-wing media to just say right well this is real i'm gonna go for it for me that was a really crucial moment that i I was so shocked to see that and i must have felt hard for you phil as well yeah i mean that was one thing i've wanted to say i noted in my mind but i didn't write it down was that i was shocked by that from george monbiot Shocked even later when he got the reports by the summer of the following year and apologised in the newspaper, and and uh, but didn't apologise to me. And I so, can tell him I've never bought the Guardian again since two thousand and nine. Really? Wow! Wow! I used to buy the Guardian. Yeah, not every day. And, but and I, I can so so his logic was was it that. Um, you were you were a small price to pay. Not that he necessarily thought you were guilty of anything, but that the right strategy to defend climate science was for your head to roll. Uh, is that is that the logic, or did he or did he ever even explain the logic? I'm not. Sure. I felt it was slightly deeper than that. I felt I felt it, it was almost as if he was having a crisis of conscience. Yeah. I, I don't think he was saying you need to just step back so that it can be properly examined. I thought, I think he was saying some of the things you said in your emails mean that you need to go. Mm. I felt it was, I felt it was more serious. Mm. Um, but the, as Phil said, he did apologize when the Muir Russell review came out later. Uh, he apologized in the guardian mm. at saying he was wrong to call for the resignation so soon. 
um, and and realised that that was damaging. So I think that was a real pivotal moment. That's so interesting. He also asked for Annie Ogden, your boss, to who he is our head, yeah, of, so, head of news, so, I think, wasn't again, she? Yeah, she was head of communications. Yeah, yeah. so a couple of months into the to the whole saga, um, he again in one of his Guardian columns was talking about the um, the total train wreck that was the PR <laughs> response um, and called for for her resignation. Mm. I mean, I think one of the things you, you're saying about it, it not, um, you know, the the, the, uh, the interview that uh, that I did was didn't sort of put a lid on things, I think was also the timing of the of the of the um, hack and the leak um, is it, it was just a few weeks before um, the Copenhagen Climate Summit. And <clears throat> we'd already had, uh, looking back at my stories, there was already a lot of political stories about um, what needed to happen at Copenhagen. We also, you know, had comments from Gordon Brown. We had comments from Ed Miliband talking about and they they came out in a way that was really quite punchy in in a way that perhaps um and we might go on to talk about this some of the science um sector didn't come out in quite the same way they came out very clearly that you know we shouldn't let the flat earthers um uh you know sort of derail climate action uh they were talking about how Although, you know, this, there needed to be an investigation into these sort of specific claims. Science was, you know, UK science was world leading. Climate science was, was, was sound. Um, you know, we were being led by the science in making these policy decisions. So there was this really quite strong political response. But of course, that just adds fuel to, to the story. Mm-hmm. So I think, um, I, I'm going to move on, um, in a minute to some of the kind of issues, I suppose, rather than the chronological events. But um, just to say a little bit about what the Science Media Centre was doing. So having failed to to get Phil into the studio, I think our our main role was just to keep getting environment and climate scientists to enter the fray on a daily basis so that no broadcast interview, no print journalist would have to struggle to get a very good scientist to defend the science and a lot of talking to different organisations about getting the other. So it was almost a bit, um, okay, let's accept there might be something wrong with Phil Jones's science. It wouldn't matter. Did you remember all that? There was a lot. It just wouldn't matter because all of the, the, our understanding of climate science is based on all of these other data sets and all of this other research that's happening. So bringing all of these people out. But um, I, I and we even ran something called uh, Introduction to the Media, which is an event that we've run for two years uh, ever since we opened to persuade scientists. We did a special one, which we'd never done before for climate science to drive home the case that these climate scientists sitting in this room who are all senior um needed to do something here you know there was a lot at stake um however what was upsetting us and i said at the beginning about us um uh, not sleeping at night was that quite often it was their institutions or their directors of comms who were urging or discouraging them to enter the fray on this um and i'm not sure of the timing but do you remember climate gate was used to describe the the emails, but also the mistake in the IPCC. Um, and Pachauri was defending it and that he'd got something wrong from the grey literature, wasn't it? It was yeah. something that had been in a, a New Scientist article or something about the WWF climate. report. I right, think. okay. Yeah, and yeah. it got its way into the IPCC report as grey literature. So, so the two got combined at one stage and then we had even more scientists saying, you know, I can't say anything about Phil Jones's emails and I can't say anything about whether Pachauri should resign or whatever. Um, so I'm not going to do the interview. So that felt like a real struggle. And we started to approach the institutions like the Met Office. So which organisations would you expect in this country to be doing absolutely everything to wade in on the side of the evidence, the body of evidence, not individuals? And we thought, right, this is NERC and this is the Met Office and DEFRA, I guess. Um, and that was that was really dispiriting because those organisations, I, I made the point in my book that the Director of Communications um, at NERC at the time, which is the research council that fund almost all UK clients, research um, I arranged a meeting with her and the first thing I said is what are we going to do what are you doing and she said I know I know Fiona it's got so bad that I've stopped telling people where I work 
<laughs> Which, of course, well, and honestly, that was that that sentence fed into the strategy. There wasn't a strategy. There was this, um, and I was getting this a lot. I was getting kind of people in the Met Office saying, Fiona, don't say I said it, but there's definitely pe- people being discouraged here. So we actually, Tom, Sheldon and I got obsessed by, we need to get these people in a room. And that's where the the um, famous, infamous press conference where we eventually did get um, Alan Thorpe, who was then head of NERC, um, Julia Slingo, am I right? I think who was, I don't think she was head of the Met Office. She was director of climate science, I think, at the Met Office. Mm-hmm. And Brian Hoskins, who was head of the Grantham um, Institute for Climate Change at Imperial. And they were, we felt more, the face of the climate science establishment. But what a job it was to get them in. That was really. And then onto my other theme, because I'm interested in um, especially Emily's view on this. In terms of peculiar things that happened during Climate Gate, at that briefing, um, I, re- I really remember it beforehand as well, with the journalists talking to each other about the pressure they were under from their editors and people like David Shukman and um, Tom Clark from Channel 4, I think then just saying, my editor thinks that we've gone native. My editor thinks that we got climate science wrong. Um, that, that, and so there, were, there was definitely a sense in which the journalist, the environment and science journalists were feeling under pressure from their editors to, to show that they'd got this right. Do you see what I mean? Mm. So they became, they were quite, you were quite, um, aerated, animated. And at that briefing, people were saying to me, like, it better be good. This fight back better be good. Mm. <laughs> um, and afterwards, um, the, a lot of them were saying, no, I'm really disappointed. Is that it? Is that all they could give us? Because they, the three of them had decided not to address your emails, not to address questions about IPCC, but just to answer questions about the state of the science. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of journalists were kind of frustrated. Go back to your point. It was the politicians almost who were, who were defending the, the, the climate, the case for climate change, whereas the scientists were just going on about the science. So Emily, I don't know if you remember this atmosphere or whether you were, I, I remember being in that room in the old SMC, <laughs> yes. which was sort of a corridor between your office and the toilets, where you used to have the <laughs> the press true. the press briefing. <laughs> and 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 I remember us all being crammed in there. And, and yeah, I I mean, looking back at my story, I don't I don't really remember the um, the briefing particularly. Although I do remember this this sort of refusal to to address these specific issues but looking back i, I think um you know the, the the line i went on in the end was um was alan thorpe at, uh, at nurk saying to effectively putting out a challenge to the skeptics okay well show us your evidence yes um and i suppose that was a sort of as as close as maybe they felt they could get to a fight back um i mean i, I think the for me, the, the, the difficult thing was, you know, it always, um, it always felt that the, the, the basic premise of the story that came out of the hacked emails, that there was this conspiracy that, um, you know, Phil and potentially hundreds of other scientists were somehow getting together and falsifying data to make climate change look like a you know a worse problem than than it really was and and doing this for for reasons that were never clear but seemed to imply you know to get grant funding or or whatever whatever the reasons were you know mm. um was always patently ludicrous but there was enough in the emails when it came to starting to talk about the you know the, the the issue with the freedom of information requests and um y- you know some of the some of the language and, and and people feeling that they had been told to you know that they weren't going to get what they wanted um you know and obviously the, there was context to that that sort of got lost in the in this in the story but but that was sort of what let it run and run and and in a way the from my point of view because PA's sort of um job is to be fast fair and accurate and so we didn't fall into this sort of 
trap quite as much as other organizations might on false balance, you know, because we could see if something was patently inaccurate, you're not going to put it in for the sake of balance. Mm -hmm. And also because we're neutral, we weren't looking for an alternative story. And, and, um, so there wasn't, there wasn't pressure from our editors to produce a narrative that did one thing or another. Um, but at the same time, you know, it was a sort of self-feeding story and, and things like the, the sort of refusal to come out and, and, and really address these things head on and say, you know, we, the, the British science establishment can tell you categorically, this is all rubbish. Um, you know, and perhaps they felt they couldn't because they hadn't sat down and read thousands of Phil's emails. But I mean, I, just coming back to some of the things that have been said, I mean, I, I wasn't up to doing much at all in terms of interviews, but I did try and put out something with Annie about the the trick to hide the decline to state what that what that was a, what that was about, and it was nothing to do with the temperature data whatsoever. Although many people, including Sarah Palin, got it completely wrong. Can you tell us just a tiny bit about what it was then? So they were saying the trick was... They were saying the decline was a a decline in recent temperatures. But the fact is that the the email was written in 1998. So it was about tree-ring data at that time, or tree-ring data over... And and one type of tree-ring data, which was the density data, not the ring widths. Um, The... Coniferous trees in the northern boreal forest were not responding as they had done after the 1960s. And so we made a modification for that in a paper. And we discussed that that modification in a paper in Nature. So we were not hiding <laughs> anything by putting something in Nature. And uh, so my colleague Keith Briffle was mostly involved with that. With, with that. Um, and so I tried to explain that in a, in a well, it went up on the website. We also put out some diagrams where we compared our our data with the two American groups, showing how similar they were. And these are all in the scientific papers. You could find this out if you wanted to. And I, I put out something about people should be reading my scientific papers and not my emails, but that didn't go down very well. But it- Well, it didn't with the sceptics, <laughs> but actually... I'm remembering when you're saying about all these these different things happening, they probably were happening too late, but they were all significant. And I think back to um, Emily's point, if, if you've got science and environment journalists who have been following this for years and who who everything you knew about it suggested to you that this wasn't a big conspiracy, but you needed stuff like this, didn't you? You needed your interpretation on the website of the trick to hide the decline, and then you needed mm. the other data. So it's, it feels to me like actually what you were doing was really important. But so, so over to you, Simon, on this thing, on my sense, whether we were just driving ourselves into a frenzy over it, I don't know. But do you think it's fair that, that mm. we, Tom and I, were feeling like, where are they? Why aren't they? And, and NERC in particular, you know, I mean, mm. Met Office is government owned and it's always a bit more tricksy. Um, but yeah, did you have a sense that you'd been a bit abandoned? There, there was definitely um, a sense around campus that there wasn't a, a particularly fulsome defence <laughs> from from partners. Um, let's put it that way. I think you know. I think it was from their point of view probably understandable because there was so much confusion, so much doubt. No one really knew what was real and what wasn't real. The story kept changing. So I, I wasn't hugely surprised, but there was definitely some glum faces from the senior management that were talking to the to the um, to the leaders of those organisations, and things like, as Phil mentioned, the data not being able to give. You know, there was, the story all became about you're hiding the data, or you've lost the data, or you've destroyed the data. I mean, every day it was a different accusation, and 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 but we had these contracts, and the fact that we just couldn't give out the data did did create real problems. But I do think, despite that. It was so good a story, and this is coming back to the editor's point of view. I think it was so good a story. Even if we've done, we've put out the data. Even if we put fill up, I think I think it just would have. It, we wouldn't really have stopped that story because it was such a great story. Um, just because it's all about taxpayers' money, um, and, and I, you know, I found it really baffling that the that they, the specialists weren't being listened to by the editors. 
I mean, that's really worrying. And I can't, I, I just not sure that would happen now, but that seems such a strange sort of um, phenomenon. Um, and, and we were getting front page stories um, with headlines. One of them was the greatest scientific scandal of our generation. And that, that headline was picked up and quoted by James Inhofe in US Congress, who was the, you know, the arch kind of skeptic <laughs> in Congress. Um, and we had US Congress on the phone to, I picked up the phone to US Congress to, to talk about the, the, um, session they were going to be holding. And, um, but they were picking up their stories from the UK media. Um, so I do think, I think it was really the UK media's response was, you know, present company accepted totally overblown and, and did make mm-hmm. things worse. And I, I'm not sure they've ever really taken any responsibility for that. So I think, yes, lo- the response from the science community might not have been perfect. But I think the the UK media's response was really over the top and and made things much worse than they needed to be. Well, that that yeah. was um, we're we're being asked to move on a bit here. So that was one of the other issues that I wanted to raise. Leads on from that time and about um, the the kind of row that developed e- even within papers like the Guardian about the prominence that was being given to this story. Um, and I was remember I was speaking at the um, World Conference of Science Journalists and got challenged in the audience because I'd defended Fred Pierce's writings on this in the Guardian. And there was Miles Allen was at that event and David Adam and there, and David worked. David Adam was an environment journalist who, who worked on the Guardian. He'd come from nature to the Guardian. And they were really angry with the Guardian for, for, because if people remember Fred Pierce, who is a ex new scientist environment, very highly respected. Um, but he was writing pages and pages and pages, like five, six, seven or eight pages mm. in the middle of a guy. It was almost a pullout. And in fact, he turned it into a book. Um, it was a five page, a five page, a five, five, um, feature special one over five days, I think, and turned into a book. We had to, we knew it was going to, we knew it was coming down the track because we were res- helping them respond, you know, we were responding to all of their questions. But it seemed just absolutely baffling because the story was starting to go away. And then the Guardian of all, of all people decided to resurrect it and just give it legs. It was, we were absolutely dismayed by that. Yeah. I, I got an email at the time when the, um, the Muir Russell report came out in July from David Adam saying that there had been disagreements within the Guardian press room for the environment area um, in February about all that. Yeah, well, quite soon afterwards, he went back to nature. So uh, I don't know also, whether that was relevant. And also, George Monbiot was never there, but he was always at of home. Of course, he's a columnist, yeah. Mm. Yeah, so he wasn't in there. Mm. Um, Emily, was that, were you aware of that, of just... Well, I think I think you kind of have to remember the context of when this was all happening. So obviously, the original leak was before Copenhagen, uh, climate summit. But then we went to Copenhagen. Uh, it dominated the headlines. Um, you know, we had the world leaders flying in. <clears throat> it was all a complete disaster, although people would dispute how much of a disaster it actually was in the long term. But, you know, at the time it felt like this terrible, just front row seats to a total global geopolitical failure um, to, to tackle this existential problem of our time we came back we were exhausted none of us had slept for for um you know days and into that then dropped the second bit of of this story the the, the issue with the ipcc report which came out i think it's sort of in the january in that sort of lull afterwards and 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 also january is always traditionally quite a quiet time for the environment because you know lots of things are in hibernation so mm-hmm. we're not writing about the kind of nature nice nature, <laughs> nature bits of, of the of the beat so so yeah, I, I, I do think, you know, it did kind of run and run and there kept being these these sort of new twists and every every so often a new kind of angle came out. Um, but but I think a lot of that was, you know, it's almost like environment had got really high up the agenda because of Copenhagen, but then had failed. And now there was this narrative of actually it's all, you know, there, there's there's all this stuff going on that we'd all been sort of not talking about or uh, you know there seemed to be a need to feed the interest in environment but but the stories that were coming were 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 ones that kind of continued this narrative this sort of story about uh, about um you know that started with climate gate and then obviously the reports came sort of thick and fast and 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 actually you know all of the reports from looking back sort of you know 
um, uh, were all were all sort of exonerated the science. There were concerns, obviously, about some of the the dealing with the FOIs, but but yeah, on the you know, but but that sort of kept the story going because every time you wrote this, the science has been exonerated. You then had to tell the whole kind of backstory, <laughs> so it's almost like it kind of perpetuated it. So um, we're being moved on to um, the, the third and almost the last section. So I guess this is this is a hindsight um, type question, really, as to whether. Whether you think it was all a, a disaster or whether anything good came out of it. And I think, um, hearing you saying, uh, Simon so strongly there that you were against the, you were dismayed by the Fred Pierce thing. Um, I think we were, we were slightly thinking differently about some of it in the Science Media Center in the sense that partly because we didn't think it was a good look for scientists to object to huge media coverage of this. There was just something when, some of these scientists, and this was the argument I had with Miles, objected to media scrutiny of the quality of climate science. It looked like that had been part of the problem, you know, that maybe there hadn't been enough scrutiny. And maybe that was because scientists, you know, very important climate scientists like Miles were, didn't want that kind of scrutiny. So, so we thought, and we're, generally the Science Media Centre gave up trying to change the media narrative and the media's priorities many, many years ago. We, we don't have that influence to decide what they cover. So I think it was partly we can't change this anyway, but it was also, I think, a sense of because your science is that good, because climate science in the UK a lot of it is really, really good quality. Bring it on, you know, bring it on. And if some of the journalists who used to come to SMC briefings before and get their worse than previously expected, you know, London will freeze over if and, and run back and file it. If they spend a bit longer at SMC briefings asking you, Phil, really putting you under pressure. And it just felt to me like we climate science had nothing to lose from this greater focus on the science. So when you were saying earlier about some of the journalists wanted you to ask very, very technical questions about the science. And and I kept feeling like the science is going to win out here because it's really good. And we just got to grit our teeth, not complain about the media coverage, privately always, but not publicly, <laughs> um, and encourage scientists to just keep talking. And, and, and definitely, just like with anything, I used to work for an aid agency. If there was a crisis somewhere, like the Mozambique floods, for a year, the media were interested in Mozambique because there'd been an event there. And this was like, front page news. There was, you know, science in the headlines is an opportunity. Um, so I, but I tried this uh, argument that maybe we'd come out stronger and better and, um, that the science journalists did win back that respect. Uh, and I think you're right. I think their status has just grown and grown generally. And I think the pandemic shows that as well, that the editors do rely on their specialists. So, it, there was a wobble and there was a moment where the editors wondered whether they'd gone native and um but but they won out as well they convinced them but i tried this argument on bob ward and robin mckee over a drink quite recently and absolutely lost as far as they were concerned <laughs> this had lost us maybe five or ten years uh, you know it set back um the kind of public understanding of climate science um, and yeah, there was nothing about this that you could say was positive. So, so in our little hindsight bit, and maybe also what you would have done differently, you know, when you sit now and reflect. So, Phil, I don't know what you think. Was any of it positive? <laughs> quite hard for you to say that, I imagine. But well, it's all quite negative for me personally. Yes, but I don't indeed. think it was that negative for the for climate science okay. in general. How do you think the whole thing strengthened climate science then? I think at that time. In the 2009-10 period, we were going through something that was referred to in the following IPCC report in 2013 as a hiatus, in that there hadn't been much warming in the in the latter half of the 20 noughts. And part of part of that was looked as we were thinking about it, what, what was the reason for it? We were understanding more about why there's the ups and downs of um, temperature from one year to the next. It's not a monotonic increase. And in looking at that, we went back to look at some of the data in a bit more detail, and the Met Office did, particularly the marine data. And there's been a big issue with the marine data over the last 20 years, which is a dramatic change in where the, how the me measurements are made. So from 
from the 18th century, they're made by ships, so sailing ships and then merchant ships. But because of wanting to improve weather forecasts, there was a load of um, autonomous drifters put round and other other things, uh, buoys in different parts of the world to try and improve the data coming in from the tropics and southern oceans. And that data is actually slightly different <laughs> from the ships. And it wasn't until they had enough of it, and enough comparisons, able to figure out that there was a slight difference, only about a tenth of a degree Celsius, between the ships. The ships are too warm compared to the new, the new data. And so that adjustment then gets rid of the hiatus that was talked about a lot in AR5, the 2013 IPCC report, and is barely mentioned at all. So it almost prompted you and the scientific community to look closer and yeah, scrutinize. look closer yeah. at some of the data, yes. And yeah. we were, we're trying to also to justify more of the adjustments we've made to the land data. But yeah. we were always aware that the land data was much more certain than the marine, marine data. data. And the skeptics and deniers go on about the land data all the time, and they really got to get to what 70% of the surface of the Earth is, which is ocean. Just, just on the sceptics point, do you also think, I and mean, we haven't really talked about this because we, we haven't had enough time, but the, you've all kind of slightly referenced with the FOIs and the atmosphere into which this happened, which was a lot of climate scientists getting a lot of targeting and a lot of hassle from climate sceptics. But do you think maybe the battle with the sceptics also had, had um, kind of played into this like certainly there was a view around amongst some that we should never be talking about uncertainty at all or um admitting that we need to go back and reassess data because that'll be a gift to the skeptics and almost our obsession with these i think it's a bit different from that i i've been i've been in this subject 45 years or more maybe even 50 um and when i used to go give a few talks in the 80s i was always told by someone who invited me that um that 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 Joe's gonna to talk to me about the date. He doesn't believe that, that it's warming. He's gonna have his 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 view. Now the internet has allowed all these Joes to contact one another and to build up a more of a head of steam on various issues of, of, of climate change in terms of the temperature data, the size of the greenhouse effect, whether carbon dioxide is that important, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And that that, I think those people were around in the earlier decades, but they couldn't, they didn't know about each, each other. And so our in, more greater interconnectedness has allowed this to build up. Just moving on from that point, definitely in 2009, um, you're right, Phil, that, that there was this, the technology allowed this, these communities to get together and, and have quite a voice. But beyond that, um, journalists were watching those blogs. Uh, I, I had to watch the, the blog, the skeptic blogs every day as part of my job because I knew that journalists were mm. watching them and making stories. This is even before the hack happened. So certain, um, like climate audit or Bishop Hill, those kind of blogs yeah. were being used to, to create s- stories, um, in the mainstream media. And then of course, when the hack happened, I mean, the, the, a lot of stories were picked up directly from the blogs by journalists. So it was as if that kind of, you know, it, it should be a good thing, this kind of citizen science almost. But it was it was used um, in a way to to create the, the first sort of instances of real false balance. I mean, no one needs to talk about false balance really until until then. And and the, it, it was extraordinary to me how you know on the in the Today program on that first Monday, why why was Nigel Lawson launching his Global Warming Policy Foundation, his his skeptic think tank? Why was that in the in the biggest news outlet that day? So it's all it's all linked to the same thing, where this this disproportionate voice is given to an extreme minority view, and so it was almost like the first fake news example, mm. I think. Um, and, and what about um, these questions of uh, um, whether anything good came out of it? Are you are you unable to see that anything good? No, I think are you not, in the Bob I, Ward camp or the Fiona Fox? Probably more in the Bob Ward camp. But I do think good things came out of it. I mean, I think for a start, editors, like as you said, I think editors will now not quite, not kind of go against what their specialists are saying. Hopefully, I think that was a lesson they must surely have learned because it, in the way that it's all turned out, um, I think it shows that truth 
wins in the end, but it can be very hard um, and it can have, you know, difficult consequences for individuals. Um, I think scientific openness has definitely won out. Uh, I think it would be, you know, if Climategate hadn't happened, it, you know, we may be not so far down the open access road. Um, I think that had a positive impact on transparency in science. So, yeah, I think there was lots of positives. What would you have done differently? Do you ever sit around thinking about that? or um, Only because you keep asking me. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I mean, I was, I was relatively junior, so I, I didn't really have the kind of the power to, to change the strategy. I mean, I think I've been thinking a lot about it. I think, I think because it happened to a university, it was very bad luck. Um, so a university is not, is not a, especially then, is not somewhere where there'll be a, a quick top-down response. It's all about collegiality and rational thought and discussion. So there was, it was, there was no fast decision-making going on. There was like meetings with casts of thousands in them. Um, so, I mean, it, going back again with hindsight, I think um, there should have been speedier decision-making, got straight down to London for a press conference in the way that we did with the second release of emails in 2011. Um, yeah, so things like that. I mean, I was lobbying for that at the time, but I was too junior. So I, I don't think me personally, I don't think there's anything I'd have done differently. We were dealt a very, very difficult hand. Any final comments? Any? I mean, I feel that in a way, looking back over the sort of 13 years since since it's happened there was definitely a real lull post Copenhagen and and post this the the climate gate um situation in environmental reporting and and climate reporting it kind of went off the boil editors I think once realized that actually there hadn't been anything to this story um and all of the the sort of uh, vindications came in with the various reports the whole thing went off the boil um and and it was really quiet for quite a long time and it was only really with um uh, the next IPCC report in 2013 14 i think and and then in the build up there you know cuz cuz in 2011 in durban at the climate summit we got this roadmap to 2015 to paris climate talks so i think by the time we got to paris there wasn't you know it looking back now it feels like that was sort of the last hurrah for this out and out attack on the integrity of climate science and the the notion that somehow these basic physical principles weren't applying themselves and and that yes there's uncertainty but you know this is happening and and it feels like that last it, Climategate almost was the last time that that argument was really powerfully pushed. That's not to say that it hasn't been pushed since, and that there is now not also not to say that there isn't now a a new counter argument to the we must take action. I don't. I feel like it peaked. That's that's fascinating, actually, isn't it? Because I think you're right. I can't remember a time where this fundamental science has been questioned in that big a way. And 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 therefore, I guess, it, I mean, we can't answer this properly, can we? But if that hadn't have happened, would that have carried on? Mm. That those people saying the basic physics doesn't show that the climate is warming. Um, and, and I think we were talking about this earlier, weren't we? That that, that quite a few of the sceptics now emphasise that they accept the science but that they don't think we necessarily have to do certain things in order to meet net zero, et cetera. But, but I wonder if maybe climate gate was, was in some ways helpful in, in subjecting the basic science to a global attack of the most extraordinary mm. nature and it proving, yeah, three, three inquiries come back and say the science is good. Yeah. Okay, well, that's that. I was just going to finish with a little anecdote about, um, um, which we discussed earlier, but about, um, when the second tranche of emails, um, were released, uh, which didn't say very much more, but certainly whoever had stolen these emails had decided to keep back, um, a few thousand in order to dump them again before another cop. 
Um, and just to, yeah, just how nice that was. I mean, it must have been a, a nearly a year later, but to get on the phone this time to, to Simon and say, any chance this time that we could get Phil on a train to the Science Media Centre tomorrow? Um, and you came, Phil. I did. Um, and I remember we had to book an even mm. bigger room. So not the, the corridor between <laughs> the SMC office and the toilet, but we'd, by then we'd moved into the climb, um, into the Wellcome Trust and we booked a huge room. And my main memory was you completely articulately and fascinatingly answering lots of questions from the science and environment journalists about these emails. And James Randerson, who's then the science editor, environment editor um, of The Guardian, coming in a bit late, um, sticking his hand up and saying, oh, I've got a question about this email to Michael Mann, in which you clearly say something that makes us all question whether or not there was something going on here. And he read it out and you just sat there and said, um, actually, that wasn't to Michael Mann. That was to a different Michael. Um, and James just made a little self-deprecating remark and every journalist in the room and us on the panel just started to laugh. And there was something glorious about it that that had you been in a position, I mean, it would be absolutely impossible. So no point saying it. But, but yeah, I think that had you been the person um, interpreting those emails, um, Back back then, it would have been yeah, it would have been a very different story, and all the journalists were very conscious of that. Great. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time. That was absolutely fascinating. Very very grateful. Great that we've all lived to tell the tale, and uh, and uh, yeah, we're in a different, very different situation. Thank you. 